Welcome to the Dead End Podcast. episode of the Dead End Podcast, and today we are discussing, kind of reviewing The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs, which is kind of a book that's pretty old. What is it? 2006? I want to say... That's um, interesting you say that. It was quite old. Well... Because you read books from like, what, 18... From like 2000? <laughs> 18 like... something? No, that is true, but I mean in terms of gender studies and, and queer theory. I don't think you can call this queer theory. Well, that's how relevant it is now. 2005 is the first um, Yeah. So, uh, The Velvet Rage, Alan Downs, 2005, let's say. Um, and this is a second edition, so I think that there's another chapter that he added or something or a or, or forward. Um, which is basically about, well, the kind of the tagline is overcoming the pain of growing up gay in a straight man's world. And so it's about kind of why a lot of gay men um, have a lot of internalized homophobia, um, why being gay or growing up gay can be so difficult, and it kind of hints at a concept called um, compulsory heterosexuality, I think, which is what we wanted to discuss as well. Um, and we'll get into that um, in a second. Uh, but basically, um, we're going to discuss... Um, what's in there i guess today um i've read it it's like a month ago and i i did not like it very much um and i will tell you why and lara you've kind of read it i read everything oh, i read, read the it. book but it's been like four or five months by yes. now i think or even longer i don't know if i maybe even started reading it before corona uh yeah but i also i had the same thing i didn't know from when it was exactly and then while I was reading, I think at some point, Ellen Downs says, our fathers have been to war. And I was like, uh, like, yeah. w which generation is that again? Because my, my father certainly hasn't been. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, only then I saw like how old he actually was when he wrote the book. Yeah. Um, I haven't read it. No, yeah. but I'm sure you can provide us with great insights great insights and um, i mean i was there when you were reading it and you were kind of like oh this is yeah odd this is yeah well but i think it's nice to have a, a straight man in our midst yes. to kind of see if you shed some light yeah well how you experience things that i of course don't experience in the same way and lara also yeah so we can it. explain some things yes to us. yeah yes please explain us even though it's Sunday. Um, yeah, anyway. And also, as far as my experience is relevant, of course. But I yeah. think, yeah, it would be yeah. interesting still. So, basically, my first issue with this book um, is basically it starts on the cover. So, the author on the cover is Alan Downs, comma, PhD, which I think already kind of suggests a kind of authenticity or authority on the part of the author. So, like it says he has a PhD, but it doesn't say what he has a PhD in. And then 
He is a psychologist. It turns out um, he was something else, and I don't remember what, um, which we should probably fact check. Um, but basically, Alan Downs is a therapist um, for middle class, mostly white gay man, uh, gay men, and, and and he says this like he kind of does put a disclaimer in the introduction saying um, that. Of course, he doesn't speak for all gay men and that, you know, there's different experiences. But then in the book itself, he generalizes a lot. He kind of says, well, this is why gay men do this. This is why they behave like this. This is kind of the root of all trauma for gay men, which I think I have spoken to people who really relate to it a lot and who really liked it for that reason, um, because they could kind of recognize themselves in what Downs is kind of describing. Uh, but I think Downs generalizes in, in such a way that sometimes I feel like, so are you saying that this is an explanation for why gay men might, for example, have internalized homophobia or why they kind of, I don't know, why they feel, why they have such like, traumatic experiences that they might repress or should should gay men feel that way that sounds weird but i think sometimes i got the impression that alan downs suggested gay men can't be happy because of the trauma that they have accumulated because they're gay and because they grew up in a heteronormative world which I think is true in, in some sense, but I think it also, it was very pessimistic for my tastes. And I think we'll get into the nitty gritty. Um, but I think if you don't explain properly, listen, I'm a psychologist who treats a certain group of men. They're quite rich, like upper middle class. They're mostly white. And obviously that's gonna be a particular experience, which I think is fine because you can't speak for all gay men anyway, but then he generalizes it to such an extent that I'm like, yeah, okay. And he also uses a lot of anecdotal evidence. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say as well. So like, it's, I think it's an interesting book and he definitely brings up many points that I think are relevant and true. But first, I also feel like he is generalizing a lot. Mm -hmm. So he's saying like all, basically, not with exactly those words, but I always feel like this is kind of between the lines. Like, all gay men are being brought up in this way. Yeah. So this is why they develop this, these and these coping mechanisms, which I very often think are just coping mechanisms that, like, everyone in our society mm. has. Because, yeah, that's because we live in this society. Yeah. And then, of course, um, if you are a gay man that has, like, certain implications that it might be different, certainly when you are straight, but... Still, I felt it was very generalized. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then it's only anecdotal evidence. Yeah. And then I think it's very true what you say as well, that he, of course, is talking about a very specific group of people. And then one other thing that comes with that is that he is talking about this um, kind of gay society, like how a lot of gay men are very um, preoccupied with like their image may that be like their career or um their looks um so like being very obsessed with looking super fit and healthy and strong 
and also being dressed very very well and with like good brands and living a certain lifestyle and then being part of this kind of gay community and being like presenting themselves within this gay community but i think that's also of course a very limited view on this high class mm -hmm. american community that he's experienced because that's his that's where his clients are coming from yeah and i think it's really difficult to generalize that or like not talk about the fact that this is a very specific group of people that he's talking about within the gay community everywhere yeah so i thought that's so basically the points you bring up is that first of all the phd thing on the, on the cover of the book implies that it is that he has taken a more scientific approach like when he was writing this book whereas it's just more anecdotal evidence really and yeah that he's biased basically yeah yeah or one should maybe mention that he is gay himself right? he is gay himself and he was married to a woman actually um for like quite a long time i think or maybe not i don't know he was together with a woman for quite a long time uh, and he was quite successful i don't remember what he did as a job and then kind of what i remember is that he had kind of repressed the fact that he was gay like he he had known at some point and he had had experiences or something but then I, i'm not completely sure about this but then he married a woman and then after a while he just realized like no like this is not it for me and then he got divorced and then he started kind of living his truth um and what i think so what what i think the book hints at and when it does well is describe this phenomenon of kind of growing up in a heteronormative world where heterosexuality is the standard and what we initially wanted to talk about in this podcast which really relates to this is this this concept of compulsory heterosexuality which is a concept developed by a theorist called adrian rich in the the 80s so she's a lesbian kind of author and academic she's also a poet and she's also a turf which is kind of she's very transphobic apparently which is not great um but kind of the way that she used this term compulsory heterosexuality was to kind of describe how heterosexuality isn't kind of a natural sexuality or like it 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 is the norm but it doesn't always function um no i should phrase that differently um so not everyone is heterosexual but those who deviate from that norm are different but compulsory heterosexuality is basically the the idea that um like say patriarchy um we kind of there's this ideology of heterosexuality that is imposed upon people that fits with this kind of patriarchal sexist misogynist um worldview because she first used it to describe kind of lesbian the lesbian experience um and how people are kind of forced to assimilate to this heterosexual kind of norm and even if they aren't heterosexual and they you know they kind of acknowledge that then still they have this frame of reference which is heteronormative mm -hmm. and so kind of what she argues is that compulsory heterosexuality is kind of a, a form of patriarchal violence because it kind of um yeah it forces these patriarchal ideas of the family and marriage and gender roles mm -hmm. and it kind of it's and that's so enmeshed in society that it kind of disappears just like kind of patriarchy um yeah. 
was not identified as a concept up until a certain point, like in the 20th century. Um, um, and I think he describes that quite well. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I think what he brings across quite well is this feeling of deeply rooted shame in in people to to be homosexual and having this incredible fear of someone discovering the secret. Yeah. Um, in one part, Dance describes that a lot of gay boys, when they're younger, they start developing characteristics or hobbies that are generally more known as female mm -hmm. in our society because they feel more connected to that and also to like be protected by their mothers from their fathers because um, they feel like, like that's a quote from our fathers, whom we somehow knew would destroy us if he discovered our true nature. So I think this brings across like this fear yeah. quite, quite well. It's like... No, and I think, you know, I think in some way that's true for everyone. Because I think even if your dad isn't openly homophobic or whatever, you still grow up with this this norm of heterosexuality. And like, if you're a man, you will fall in love or marry or whatever a woman. Mm -hmm. And if you're a woman, you will have to fall in love or marry a man. Um, and if that's not the case, then you're different. And I think that to an extent is true. And I think so that basic phenomenon, I, I agree with. But I feel like Downs sometimes seems to suggest that it, it, it's the case for all gay men in the world that their fathers are super homophobic, that they kind of see these feminine tendencies in their 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 sons and then try to stamp those out and then kind of these men develop shame and then what I found quite generalizing and also just kind of damaging and harmful as a generalization is that then kind of gay men become hypersexual later in their life and that results from shame and it's like the only way that they can do with that shame or to kind of the only way that they can accept their sexuality is by first having a lot of <clears throat> sex with a lot of different men yeah it's a lot about like all you're like in the world for is being validated by your father and you try everything to kind of compensate the feeling that your father won't accept your sexuality and i think Again, maybe this um, plays into the fact that the book is a bit, or like his generation that he writes about and that his clients belong to is like quite a bit older than us. Yeah. So I think that's like a big part of, of course, when I think, for example, of my grandfather, he definitely has a different view on homosexuality. And I think um, for his generation, it would be... That would be a very different reaction to, for example, how our parents' generation is reacting to their children being homosexual. Yeah. But then also probably, yes, like your grandfather, for example, would have a very different view of what being hypersexual is. As in maybe to, to him or his generation, that would be having, say, uh, five to ten different partners a year. Whereas in today's society... Well, I think in today's society, we would also say that's that's quite a bit, but it wouldn't be anything really special or noteworthy. Yeah, nothing out of the ordinary. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I also wanted to ask because you said, um, yeah, quite a while ago, but you said that um, he, the author is gay as well. Uh, so I wanted to ask, um, and oh yeah, and that he only, um, when he was, or it was that he, uh, yeah, realized uh, that he's gay or that he finally sort of was comfortable with it or was fine with it or was like thinking, okay, but this is actually who I am and that he was married before. Um, so I want to ask, did he, with his patients, clients, I guess, also experience that, that they were um, also living this sort of, I guess, fake life or double life before, uh, yeah, they came out, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So um, I think he also talks about different kinds of coping how people are trying to deal with the shame they feel for being gay so one thing is like not coming out of the closet and then even so either you are really suppressing it that much that you're not even aware of it yourself mm -hmm. or you are aware of it yourself but you're like totally in denial and you try to hide it from yourself and from everyone else as good as you can or you admit it to yourself but you really want everyone else to not know about it at all and then It's like this phase where you, for example, are hypersexual and yeah. Yeah. What else do you have to add to that one? Yeah. So again, he uses a lot of anecdotes from his patients. Yeah, and then there's people who, who have been married to a woman, say, um, and then later they actually decide I can't do this or like the, the, the wife found out and they divorced or whatever, even if they have kids, kind of like a Brookback Mountain situation. Um, or... Um, they're like well okay so I don't like women but I'm also never going to get married to a man or I'm never going to like explore that part of myself so I'll basically be like asexual or whatever for the rest of my life um, and there's people who you know they have accepted that they're gay but then they have all this relationship trouble and I remember this one anecdote about this guy who couldn't stop cheating or whatever mm. or who was continually being cheated on um, which is heartbreaking and which is very sad um, but what I think is too generalizing about kind of what he says is that all gay men have internalized kind of trauma which I agree with to a certain extent I think mm -hmm. there's no way to prevent that I think if you grow up in a heteronormative world then you will always feel different And I think you can yeah. overcome that to a large extent, but you're still different. Like, that's mm -hmm. not going to change. You can just accept your difference. But what I think this guy says, what Down says is, everyone has trauma, and that makes that makes everyone kind of act out in some way. Like, every gay man, like, either by having a lot of sex, or doing drugs, or becoming an alcoholic, or by hiding your sexuality and marrying a woman. And what I didn't really see at all was like positive stories of people saying well yeah i had some difficulty but i had a really accepting father or whatever um and now i don't know i'm happily married or not even or i'm like happily single um and what i think kind of downs doesn't consider is that a lot of the problems that he describes also go for straight people in the sense that like obviously straight people don't have trauma because of their sexuality But I think, you know, what we've discussed before is that lots of people, I think because of 
the ideal of love or whatever that has been imposed upon them kind of tr find the one or they want to find the one and that's all they're doing yeah. and they date a lot and they have a lot of sex and then because they can't find the one and they're sad or they need validation yeah i think like being ashamed of not being like society wants you to be like like you're not the model on the poster i think that's something that a lot of people struggle with in general and then also what you said the idea of the perfect relationship and how that all has to happen these are quite general struggles i would say yeah as well. i think it's also quite a sort of general thing that like um it makes a lot of sense that if you are a therapist and you have clients or patients i don't know what is the correct word patients clients you say clients for a psychologist clients so this he is a psychologist he has these clients then and that naturally these people don't live the happiest yeah sort of brightest life <coughs> yeah. because they go to therapy exactly so yeah it would make a lot of sense like if you are a doctor and you see all these ill people every day you're like yeah at some point you you could write a book and you could just be like, oh my god all these people mm -hmm. are just always ill all the time it's crazy yeah so i mean yeah then it makes a lot of sense that he gets this view about gay people and i guess he could have seen a lot of clients where he could have had a lot of clients but then still it's quite to me like it sounds like how it sounds like to me is that it's quite a yeah big sort of leap to then go to uh yeah to sort of go to this idea of okay but then yeah this must be a general theme amongst gay people yeah because mm -hmm. it, it more sounds to me like yeah it's a general theme <coughs> amongst people who are unhappy Yeah. But like you both said, uh, straight people or bi people or whoever, whoever really, yeah, probably experience quite the the same struggles, the same things. I mean, like it's quite a bad term anyway. But daddy issues, I think, that isn't limited to gay people in that sense. I think many people. Oh, is that something that? Oh, yeah. Okay, in that sense, yeah, he does focus on it in the sense of like validation from your father but yeah of course that's a term that you use a lot for especially i would say straight girls as well yeah yeah so i i think maybe for that that very specific type of daddy issues sure but i guess the more general concept of daddy mm -hmm. issues is very much like yeah it it can um sort of affect anyone I, i don't think that has anything to do with being gay necessarily yeah i would say yeah. yeah one other thing that um i thought was quite unclear to me like he has these three stages about like the development that you go through when you want to be um like when you develop like a good relationship to your sexuality as a gay man and then he has like the first one first one stage one is um, being overwhelmed by shame so this is like this part where we also briefly talked about before and what we also briefly talked about before with either not admitting it to yourself and especially not to others that you are homosexual um, and then oh yeah he also says then in this stage people are especially prone to substance abuse and anonymous sex yeah um, when they first come out before before they uh, officially before. come out 
And then in stage two, that's like the compensating for shame. So this is when you go crazy. So you do come out, but then mm -hmm. you kind of act out. And that's also the... That's sort of the first yeah. thing. Why does he say that? Because didn't he before then, I guess, make the point that people haven't come out, that they are more like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, keep it. So it's, or it's keeping it a secret, or it's like acting out with like substance abuse. That's the, that's the part two already. Oh, it's the, part two. So part one, he says, is being overwhelmed by shame and keeping it a secret. Uh-huh. And that is often uh, associated with substance abuse and anonymous sex even more than in the other stages, because, for example, if you're not out and you try to hide it from everyone, it's maybe more an option for you to have anonymous sex with someone mm -hmm. and never see that person again than if you're out and you actually date people even if it's more like a hookup thing, but you're more comfortable with actually getting to know people to a certain extent then, yeah. I guess. So I think that is maybe the difference. Yeah, I was just thinking that if you if you do that anonymous mm -hmm. sex thing, then you are, uh, yes, sort of, I guess, actively engaging in gay behavior. But like in secret, you're, you're only like you're the only person that then knows about it. You're not talking about it and you're doing it secretly. Yeah, exactly. But that, then you are a step further than just being like, no, this is. Yeah, this but is this not is happening. like he this still categorizes it into the same box, basically. Okay. And then the second stage is where you're compensating for shame. That's what he calls it. And this is where you then go a bit crazy and you use all these coping mechanisms with like showing your wealth like having like a super excessive lifestyle maybe drinking a lot and taking drugs which is their thing as well i think yeah. that's but then again probably related to the group that he is talking to mostly as like mm -hmm. a psychologist and then the stage three is about discovering authenticity and which i think where he basically says the solution to all of this is getting out of this gay community which is all about prestige and your image yeah and also settling for a partner that isn't perfect and i was like wow that's that's the solution to to everything then apparently lowering your standards and be with a normal person yeah i feel like he's trying to be like a freud for gays as in like freud did say a lot about like gay people and sexual inversion and stuff yeah but i think you just can't generalize to this extent without it being harmful in some way i also think kind of this this book feeds into a lot of stereotypes about gay yes, men. Yes, definitely. That's what I felt as well. Like I don't know any gay man that is the way that he describes yeah. them. Yeah. And they're out there. Like I do know some, but like I think that is a very that's not an individual experience, but I think if you're going to generalize in this way, obviously it doesn't matter how i behave or not and i can be like well that doesn't relate i, I don't find that mm -hmm. relatable at all like okay then maybe it's not the book for me right that's fine but i think there are a lot of harmful stereotypes about gay men generally which contributes to a lot of homophobia mm -hmm. um say around the aids crisis basically a lot of people were saying like these sex obsessed gay men all they do is have sex. They don't use protection. Uh, it was called gay cancer, right? Like there were all these kind of processes going on and there was this rhetoric um, that kind of said, okay, this is what gay men deserve because... Wasn't it also Nixon who said something along the lines of 
yeah, like it's quite it's quite obvious. Like if certain behavior results in like a certain disease mm -hmm. in this disease, then maybe you need to change your behavior. Yeah, period, which mm -hmm. is a very interesting sort of line of reasoning. Yeah, but yeah, I think I, maybe that was Reagan because he was um, in charge at the time. Maybe it was Nixon. I don't know. Um, Probably Reagan. Then. Yeah. Um, but yes, so what what has been done forever and what people will continue to do is, um, I wrote an essay about this, um, is um, kind of use this. The essay in the show notes. <laughs> yes, the entire essay. Um, no, but kind of this idea that so gay men are promiscuous and being gay is wrong in the first place. So, you know, um, you shouldn't be gay and having sex with men is very, you know, immoral. So getting sick then is what you deserve because it kind of in a Christian context, it's like, you know, it's a punishment for yeah. behaving in a way that you shouldn't be behaving. Sinful. Obviously this isn't the same as that, but I think what this book does is it feeds into stereotypes about gay people. And it's not the same when an actual gay man, you know, talks about experiences that people do actually go through. But I do think I could imagine straight people reading this and if they're not necessarily very critical readers, be like, oh, so this is the gay experience mm -hmm. then. Yeah. So like, this is how... It's like a large part of the gay experience. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think... I don't know. I think I've... I have spoken to people who read this and who relate it so much. And like, those were also people who did really struggle with coming out for whatever reason who did kind of cope with that by, I don't know, exploring their sexual life, if you will. Um, and I think that was a result of shame, like definitely. Yeah. But I don't think that delegitimizes their experiences. Um, and I'm not saying that Downs is delegitimizing experiences, but I think if you're psychoanalyzing and objectifying people in this way and kind of generalizing to this extent then I wonder what you're really doing. And I think what you're doing is contributing to kind of rhetoric surrounding gay men as sex obsessed, sex crazed, um, I don't know, promiscuous, unsafe men. And I think just because it's true for some people, you then shouldn't generalize to say there's three stages in every gay man's life. And yeah, that's also the thing like with the three stages. I didn't really understand what he was saying with that. Maybe it was just me not properly understanding it, but yeah. I felt like he didn't really knew himself what he actually wanted to say with that and what these three phases actually are yeah. and what what the point is where you kind of achieved a happy life yeah. in, in stage three or whatever. No. So that was quite unclear to me. But I also think like what you, well, both you basically said before, what you commented on with what, what the author of the book said that, um, yeah, a lot of gay men just lead quite unhappy lives and that the solution to that is to um, really try to live, to, yeah, to get sort of out of that bubble, to get out of that yeah, gay community and settle for someone who's nice and who is, yeah, I guess brings you like it was down to earth i guess or whatever or just like is good for you is a good yeah. person for you and makes you happy and doesn't um make you uh sort of so vulnerable for all these ideas or 
yeah, I guess, concepts that you as a gay person apparently experience so much. But then, uh, yeah, I would even sort of, you, you both said, of course, that that's, that's uh, quite uh, weird. And then about you said that there are, that you do know gay men who, who do very much relate to that. And we're like, yeah, I mean, that maybe they haven't said like that, but like sort of like, oh, but I, I do experience the problems as described in this book. And yeah, like maybe they would even say, like, oh, that would be a solution for me. But I would maybe even take it a step further and say like that the problems in the book, as in those sort of problems that gay men have, that even if some uh, gay men relate to that, that, that doesn't even necessarily mean that that has any value. As in, I would probably um, assume that these problems are just more very general life problems. <coughs> and these people you know happen to be gay, happen to identify with those problems. Mm -hmm. But even so, I wouldn't... I personally, like from what I've heard so far, wouldn't sort of classify them necessarily as yeah gay problems so to speak yeah that's what i thought because when i was reading it at some point i was like oh, i can relate to that problem i was like wait but i'm not a gay man <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, how specific I mean, is it yeah my like because i study law then right and then it's it, it can be quite a big thing to decide of course if you're like good enough and if you would even want that really but to go and work for a big firm to go sort of into corporate law or not basically go work in Amsterdam do corporate law uh, for, for a big company work a lot of hours uh, uh, let's say like uh, 55 to 60 hours a week and you earn a lot of money and you have, of course have a certain lifestyle and certain things are expected from you and that is a bubble it really really is or it can be it's, it's I think it's very easy to become part of that bubble if you go and work at a firm there but then when I talked about it with my parents as well, and especially my mom, she was like, well, you should do whatever makes you happy. And if you feel that you have doubts about a life like that, if you're not really enthusiastic about it, then yeah, it's probably really good to consider if that is a life that you would want to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I think in the same way, some people choose a partner because it is very important to them that, that their partner is gotten a certain education or is from a specific social class or whatever or has been raised a certain way but then those things can be important of course as a, as a general framework for how well you sort of probably match but at the same time it doesn't have to mean anything yeah so yeah i don't know i i more to say i think it's quite difficult to say that these problems are uh yeah are so sort of so necessarily relatable for gay men because i think when i think about my life i also think like, oh but i kind of want to you know i want to have a nice relationship i want to have uh yeah i mean career-wise then of course but also like with my partner i i don't want to be in an environment of course where yeah, certain stereotypes, I guess, are really emphasized. So, yeah, to me, it all very much sounds like general themes of life, yeah. so to speak. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I also think that what you also kind of touched on is this idea that there is a 
or that there should be a one-size-fits-all way of living. Mm -hmm. And what I I think, kind of what I've just realized, what also was an issue um, for me with this book, is that Downs doesn't really seem to question this idea of finding, say, one person that's right for you and that you're going to marry and have a life with, say, or, um, yeah, or, or he doesn't really even doubt the fact that you need a relationship or something to be happy in your life. Um, so I found two quotes from The Velvet Rage, which I think mm-hmm. kind of help with this. And one of them is, which I remember reading now, and I was like, okay then, is after a while, we've all sort of given up on finding Mr. Right. It's more about, are you Mr. In My Bed Right Now? And whatever you do, please don't stay for breakfast, end quote. And I think, so this this idea of finding Mr. Right is seen as kind of this 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 guiding principle or or i or idea or desire for gay men which is true i think for 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 some um but i think the way in which this book also feels quite dated for me is that it really seems to assume um okay you want to find one person that's right for you and that's what's going to save you in the end yeah exactly. and because you have all the shame that you can't overcome. That's where you're going to have sex with all these different men. That's on, basically on the look for this one person. Yeah. That will then, if you have that person, then everything will be fine because you will feel validated and you don't need the validation of your father anymore and then everything will be okay. Yeah. And I think recently there's been a lot more emphasis in like queer theory on kind of the generative potential of rejecting those kind of dominant modes of I'm becoming a bit like jargony now, but kind of the, those traditional modes of being with someone or like monogamy or I don't know, having one Finding person. the one. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so the one. Yeah. Um, also kind of another quote that relates to that from uh, The Velvet Rage um, is, quote, our own internal conflicts, and this is about gay men, I'm assuming, prevent us from gaining the emotional clarity needed to maintain a safe and satisfying bond. The situation compounds when two men, both overwhelmed with shame, come together in an intense and explosive expression of passion, end quote. And so I think what he's, he's saying isn't wrong, and I think, you know, having, being able to maintain a safe and satisfying bond is, is, is good and important, but I think what Downs is saying is you need to find that with a romantic partner. Or I think a lot of like recent work in terms of queer studies and kind of just generally from people who are gay has been about, okay, how are we going to be happy in spite of not finding one romantic partner? Yeah, because of course you shouldn't be having this idea of I ha- I'm gonna be unhappy also because I'm gay. Yeah. Until I find the the one. Yeah. And there's like this one specific person out there, and then it will ev- everything will be fine and fall into place if I only find that. Yeah, person. exactly. I think I think there's two things. Yeah. First of all, that you need to find that one person, and then second of all, as long as you don't, and especially if you don't, you are unhappy and yeah. incomplete. Mm-hmm. While growing up, what was your idea about like partnership or marriage even? Because I feel there are still quite a few people in our generation who feel like that there is 
like this one person and like a soulmate and mm -hmm. you really have to search for this one person like what where are your views on this well for me i think i definitely grew up with this idea that there is this one person and that one person will make you like happy of course and it, it is the person for you like maybe like not necessarily you have to find them straight away like it, yeah it can be sort of a uh, uh yeah trial and error i guess but at some point you will find someone and you will be together with that person for the rest of your life and you'll be happy and whatever and i think that has mostly that hasn't really been my parents though because they've always just been like you know whatever makes you happy mm -hmm. is fine with us but then most well also still bit my parents i guess because yeah the whole sort of uh grandchildren thing has been mentioned in the last couple of years like <laughs> my mom saying oh we'll, oh, only in the last couple of years you're so lucky <laughs> we'll be, yeah it would be so nice to have grandchildren all this stuff but i think from society yeah I, I, i've definitely been exposed to that 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 is sort of mm -hmm. the norm that is the idea to live and yeah i think Mm, I, I couldn't put a sort of specific age on this, but I think definitely um, up until my, I would say, yeah, teenage years or maybe even early 20s, I was also kind of like, well, that's exactly how I would want it to be. That's mm -hmm. how it needs to be as well. And I think that's great. Like if you, if you have that view of how, like that, that's how you want it to be and that actually happens, that's lovely. You meet someone before the age of say 23 24 you are together for a couple years and then early 30s you have your first child and everything and then maybe you have one or two more and you're so happy and then yeah you probably get married before because it's the proper thing to do and then yeah just you know you buy your first house whatever you're happy mortgage work rent death and so on yeah yeah basically um happy life <laughs> yes uh all that stuff and that's lovely but if you are say uh yeah 30 31 and you are single then i can really see how it is crushing or yeah crippling this thought of like okay i am not adhering or i'm not sort of um really fulfilling these yeah i guess well fulfilling the standard is you can't really say that. these ideals yeah yeah i'm not i'm not living up to that standard of mm -hmm. being with someone or whatever and i think it's so interesting that i mostly hear girls say this where they are in their early 20s say between 20 and 23 and then they'll say like oh and i yeah i'm, I'm definitely gonna have kids when i'm 27 and we're going to be so happy like um, and then i want to be together with someone for a couple of years already like a year maybe two years or so mm -hmm. we're going to be so happy it's going to be so great and then i'm thinking like yes that is lovely to think that's that would be great but that's not really a thing that you can plan like that like sure you could but it probably wouldn't make you very happy and if it happens to turn out that way that's lovely like you meet someone at 25 you have your first kid a planned kid even of course then at 27 or 28 and my god you're so happy and you stay together for the rest of your lives but quite often that's not really like how it goes like you first of all you can't decide things like that in your life and then second of all if it then doesn't turn out that way then 
of course you will be unhappy because you have that idea of and if society pushes that on you massively as well like okay you're going to be a mom at say between 27 and 30 if that then doesn't happen yeah that's that's horrendous of course it's horrible because yeah you haven't sort of fulfilled that very important task or duty and here you are i mean yeah and then of course sort of that idea of well now you need to hurry up to find someone mm-hmm. because yeah, time is ticking or whatever yeah yeah i think it's i i, I think growing up i kind of experienced that but i think i still experience it quite a bit with um yeah then to me i think the the guys i talk to are just like oh whatever like you know it doesn't matter and all this stuff but i think mostly girls are very much um yeah influenced by this idea of like this is how it needs to be and you need to find a good man and yeah yeah like the societal pressure behind this maybe yeah and then of and course pre- girls have to yeah yeah sorry but preferably also finding someone during your studies as well that's quite that's a big thing yeah 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 but i think that's for girls maybe also because you are at a certain age when you're studying and then you have the time to get to know the person and then you, when you're done with studying preferably already worked in your job for like one or two years yeah and then you get married and then you get your first child mm. was first child etc because you are a woman and like biologically for you it's more important to have children at a certain age than it would be for a man of course so i think this might be the reason why for girls that plays a bigger role or like the time pressure feels more urgent um yeah generally i don't know i i don't remember really how i thought about all of this like about like having finding the one and having one partner when i was way younger but i think also because my parents separated uh, when i was a teenager i think I was very aware of the fact that it's very difficult to rely on mm. partnership in that sense. And even if you're married, of course, it can go away at any point and your ways may go into different directions. And yeah, so I think quite early on, I was very sure that the chances that I would find one person, I would just spend the rest of my life with that one person uh, weren't very high. And still, I believe that this is nothing you should expect or take for granted mm. in your planning in any way. And it doesn't seem very realistic to me as well. Because even if I love a person very much and everything works out very well with that person during the current time, and I can even see myself living with that person for the rest of my life, you never know what's going to happen. And I also don't think it's a bad thing. I think that's a big issue in our societal views right now is that it's depicted as such a bad thing to split up and have another partner yeah i think there are so many amazing uh, beautiful loving and interesting people on this world and limiting to, to yourself to like one person for for your life is also yeah. a sad thing and i definitely don't agree with the idea of that one soulmate that is also like just statistically that's a horrible idea because yeah in this age of globalization especially there's imagine there's just one person on the planet that's there for you that's horrifying because what are the odds that you will find them and so often you happen to meet them in in like your very very limited like yes. a very limited amount of people <laughs> limit- that you've met throughout your life yeah. properly met right not just like someone you yeah. vaguely know from like your studies yeah but someone you you've gotten to know to the point where you could actually 
sort of kind of maybe make a, a reasonable assumption if they are a good fit for you. And I also wanted to say, like, with the, with the shame of, uh, of society, like how society is shaming people, I truly wonder how many people that are alone uh, at the age of, say, 31 to 34, that's quite a really weird age range, let's say you are 32 <laughs> and you have uh, been working for like six, seven years and you have dated a bit and you had like one or two relationships, but you're alone at this point, mm -hmm. that I think, uh, yeah, I, I do personally think that it's really a society is shaming you into feeling bad about that and, and that you must be feeling alone and you're lonely and you don't have anyone and uh, all this stuff like how you don't have someone to share life with whereas you can have so many friends or whatever acquaintances or you can get so much joy out of your work or other stuff you do like literally anything else besides having that one person that you uh, that is your yeah partner life yeah. partner so yeah. to speak in whatever form like if you're married or if you're just dating properly dating i guess or if you are boyfriend or girlfriend or yeah whatever you the label you put on it that it really is society that's telling you like no no like you are lonely and i i truly do think that many people feel lonely then or alone because of that not because they don't feel fulfilled at that point in mm -hmm. their life but it's just external factors basically telling them like yeah you are unhappy you mm -hmm. are alone yeah and that of course then if uh yeah society i guess or mostly then people around you tell you that as well all the time or remind you of that all the time that you aren't adhering to that specific standard yeah it's horrible and then of course it becomes i think sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way like of course if if this keeps happening on and on again, yeah, then naturally at some point, yeah, you will probably fall into that trap and be like, okay, I, I guess I am quite lonely. I guess I am quite unhappy. And if that already started at a very early age, which I think it does for many people, mm -hmm. then yeah, there's not there's not really a high chance that you'll reach the age of 30-something, <laughs> let's say early 30s, um, and that you happen to be alone at that point in life, at, you know, like, or single, and that you are completely happy with that. Maybe for, for a couple of months or so, but not for like two years. That's yeah. like, yeah. yeah. We should also really discuss Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Like we should all watch it and because it ties into a lot of Amazing. things Amazing, yeah, I really want uh, to watch it anyway. I've personally, I found it very liberating to know that I'm never really gonna fit with like certain ideals about family life or marriage or what have you. I mean, ironically, I am now in a monogamous relationship. But um, oh, so oh, you're gay. That's so weird. <laughs> wow. You're you. Um, humble brag. No, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, gift baskets you can be sent <laughs> to. Um, yes, we are now Instagram. Fish. Um, anyway, um, well, no, um, my boyfriend posted a picture of the both of us to his Instagram. So really, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I, I don't follow him. You should. you should. It's cute. It's a cute account. He has a very cute ukulele song. Yeah, it's very sweet. He's, he's talented. Did you put up your song? 
No. Oh, never mind. That would have been no, okay. That would have not been okay. Yeah, He's going to listen to this. Hello, <laughs> shout out. Uh, no, but so I, in, I relate to what Downs wrote to kind of come back to the book in the sense that I... It was shame, I think, that I felt upon realizing, okay, I'm gay, and so I'm not straight, and so that's going to drastically alter the course that I used to think my life was going to take, you know? Um, And in that sense, I was definitely as a teenager up until, like, my early 20s, maybe. I mean, I am still in my early 20s, but, like, until I was 20, maybe. Um, I really did think, like, am I going to be tragically unhappy because I'm not going to find a wife to marry and to have kids with. Um, and I also remember when I was 12, when I genuinely did not know I was gay, mm-hmm. maybe on a very like unconscious level, but I remember telling my mom, oh, I really hope that I'm not gay because then it's going to be so difficult yeah. because like people don't like gay people, mm-hmm. so it's going to be very hard. And how are you going to have children when now... You know, I'm not even sure that I want to have children because I've kind of, I, I like children, but like, I, I, you don't need to know that. And I think it should no, be, yeah. it's weird that it's kind of expected that you want to have children. Yeah. And then if you don't, that you're some kind of pariah or that you're really mm-hmm. weird. Um, but for me, it's been very liberating to then think, okay, well, I'm never going to be able to fit in that mold like the, of, of normalcy also because I'm mm-hmm. disabled so, like, people are never going to look at me and think, oh, he's so, he's the embodiment of a heterosexual patriarchy, yeah. you know, um, which I would never want either. But so that's been very liberating for me because I, I also realized, like, I'm not going to be able to be very happy with, with one person. Like, that shouldn't be the goal because if I'm not happy with who I am as a person or with my life generally... Mm-hmm then finding the one and I don't really believe in the one I think there are people that you're suited to or whatever but I don't think there's one person and I thought you know if that's the goal when I'm not really happy with who I am now then I'm not going to be happy when I'm with that person Um, and so I really I think it's it can be an act of rebellion then to say okay well I'm going to try and reject that model of having to find the one to be happy with and marrying them and find uh, having kids with them or whatever. And I'm going to see what I actually derive happiness from. And for mm-hmm. me, that's my friends and I don't know, d- doing things that I enjoy doing. But I've, I've always been, especially in the last couple of years, been very deliberate about kind of considering am I happy? And I don't really believe in happiness as a permanent state, but that's something different. But, um, so like what makes me happy and what makes me feel fulfilled. And now that I have loads of great friends and that I, you know, I do things that I enjoy. I'm doing a master's that I like. Generally I do acting. I I have all these hobbies that I enjoy, Mm -hmm. you know, doing then finding someone really what became an afterthought or whatever it wasn't yeah. like i need to find someone otherwise i'm not going to be happy yeah the idea is i i i have a great life and if i can share that great life with someone great but i'm I, i'm already living a great life like mm-hmm. i don't feel like i'm missing something and even if i did feel like that i, I also knew that like finding one person wasn't going to solve it and so that to me has been very liberating um, but I think I have not a unique position 
as in like I'm a unique individual but I think when you're gay and disabled and also like I don't I mean I can pass for straight but like I'm not very masculine um, in the sense that people couldn't guess that I'm gay because loads of people do so I think I'm never going to fit into that mold so why would I try and that has been very liberating for Mm -hmm. me Um, and so I think what this Downs person does this Downs person the author of this book um, is assume that finding Mr. Right as he kind of calls him is and should be the goal of everyone who is gay and what I think he touches upon is that it's very hard to be happy with someone if you have a lot of issues that you're not resolving so then you know you can be in a relationship with a great person but you might not be aware of it or there might be issues that kind of ruin that relationship I think he touches on that but he doesn't seek or find alternative modes of being <laughs> also sounds, yeah, it's yeah. More like he's, he's just uh, sort of in his thinking just stuck in these sort of very rigid structures yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's ultimately I think the biggest issue that I have with the book mm-hmm. is that it it touches upon a lot of things and it, it explains some things quite well but then it doesn't say okay and, and kind of the the tips that he gives for like living a good life or whatever mm-hmm. really are geared towards how can you approximate the heterosexual ideal yeah that's what i also think is quite interesting so what i also like one thing that i liked about the book um like in the back of the book are like um skills for living an authentic life because he says living an authentic life is what will help you to be happy yeah um and i thought those were quite nice so those are like just very short tips for example one is called the man i would become so and it says when you're facing a decision then always ask yourself what would the person that i want to be do in this situation which i think is generally good Great advice. advice yeah and then another one for example is one thing one person one conversation at the moment so he says really focus on what you're doing at this very moment so like being mindful basically and not being distracted or also being disrespectful to other people while for example constantly being on your phone while you're having a friend over and these things but again those are i think very general um tips for yeah what so what was his first tip again the first one that i said was the man i would become so like when you when you have to decide something think okay what would the person that i ideally want to be like what would that person do that was interesting because i more recently read about this and i think i also read it in a podcast somewhere Mm -hmm. where they were talking about how you can change your behavior basically or your um yeah if you want to change certain habits that then also you uh don't think in the sense of like okay i'm going to bed at 10 i'm going to bed at 10 you're just thinking if you want to stay up late you're thinking to yourself like no i am a person who goes to bed on time i'm a person who, who cares so much about myself that i will allow myself to be able to do that mm-hmm. with that line of thinking which i thought was very interesting but i yeah i do very much like that he's then also saying that especially it it to me it seems like a very stark contrast with the rest of the book whereas he's so sort of yeah i mean he, he from what we've talked about in the, in the sort of whole previous hour i mm-hmm. guess seems very rigid in his thinking and this seems quite more quite 
progressive really well, he is he is a therapist and i think these are like all good advice but then also because i thought this would be the most interesting part of the book that i would want to talk about i took notes on it and then i realized while i was taking them that he like within each of these categories that he has for the tips he's kind of repeating the same thing over and over again with like a little shift in his perspective to give it a different title and then change it a little bit and like basically fill more pages. So I felt like in total, this book um, gives an interesting view, but I think he's generalizing a lot and it feels like he is simplifying things a lot as well to make it a bit more entertaining, but he's um, less truthful by doing that, I feel. Yeah. So that was like my overall impression of the book. So definitely I think there is truth in it, um, but he's either taking very general struggles and kind of he doesn't i think he often also says well this is just in this specific situation or this is just my general observation but i think between the lines it sounds like he says this is how it is for gay men but i think those are either things that are something that everybody struggles with or he is just simplifying things so it isn't in depth enough to actually see the bigger picture yeah I think I think he could have then I haven't read the book, but I think he could have said like, okay, these are the struggles that almost all or a lot mm. of my gay um, clients have. However, yeah, this this is a part of a sort of broader picture of yeah, basically everyone has these struggles. Um, but if he doesn't do that and he writes very very specifically. Uh, sort of mentions that that this isn't specific to that group he just this is just a group that he has as uh, clients mm -hmm. and therefore he has written this book but so more to say he could have taken the approach of saying like well there are these life struggles and oh look at that all these gay people have the exact same struggles like look at how society is basically yeah um, uh, having an impact on all of us but I feel that if he writes this book and he's saying, oh, look at this, look at gay people experiencing all of this, then the message comes across really as being, well, yeah, like you both said as well, this is sort of like these problems are specific. And I think that's also how he describes it in the book then. These problems are specific to gay people. Gay people experience this, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he should have then if he meant it in a more general sense, which I don't think he then necessarily did, he should have specified that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think, so I also, before I read The Velvet Rage, um, two years ago, I read a book that's very similar um, called Straight Jacket, How to Be Gay and Happy by Matthew Todd, which I gave four stars in Goodreads. Um, and it, I, I can four out of five. Yes, nice. which I can honestly I don't really remember a lot of it, um, but I remember reading it at the time, and so my review was horribly depressing and very long-winded at times, but also incredibly insightful into the many problems of the gay community. Um, so I I guess that at the time I thought it was a bit better. I don't know if I read it the same way again now, although two years ago mm -hmm. it's not that long ago. Um, don't think I've changed that much in terms of how I you know feel about myself or the gay community but maybe that's a better alternative i can honestly say i don't remember a lot um but yeah um 
I agree with everything Martin says, basically, and what you yeah. said as well. Sweet. Um, do we have anything else to discuss? No. Can I then end with my review on Goodreads? Please do. As a summary of what Please we've do. all said. Yes, go ahead. Um, because I read it, and I was like, oh, that's nice. All right, so my review on Goodreads was... Oh, oh yes, we have to do the questions. Yeah. Laura just like I just shook, shook my head. Oh, okay, we're not doing because the questions. Because I, I don't feel like it fits this time. Well, I did, there's a certain listener who said that he really missed the the questions. Is it perhaps the, your boyfriend? Maybe it is. The one listener we have. Basically. Hello, yeah, shout out. One. Shout out to him. Okay. But I'll do my review yes. first. Yes. Go for it. Perhaps it's because I didn't relate to the image down sketches of gay men in The Velvet Rage, but I found this book to be a very stereotypical, generalizing, and unnuanced depiction of gay men and gay culture. While Downs partly acknowledges that his work is based both on personal experience and on the experience of a very limited group, and then between brackets it says middle class, relatively wealthy, and white gay men, I often felt like Downs' claims about, air quotes, the gay man were simply untrue and didn't make much sense. Although the text certainly raises valuable insights regarding the connection between growing up in the closet and the subsequent shame that gay men can experience, Downs' claims surrounding the connections between relationship trouble for gay men, abuse, and trauma seemed unfounded. I have no doubt that the experiences Downs describes resonate with a lot of people, and it is certainly useful to relate these experiences. However, the fact that Downs is a psychologist treating gay men does mean that his sample size for his universal claims appears to be limited and it certainly doesn't warrant the universalizing claims I feel he makes. At times, I feel like Downs, unconsciously though it may have been, reproduced homophobic ideas about gay men, sex, and mental illness, and to me this was unhelpful and at times slightly offensive. For example, he frequently describes homosexuality and internalized homophobia as a disability, which doesn't do much to combat the homophobic connection that had been made between homosexuality and disability and mental illness, which is very niche. Um, and then my final sentence is, all in all, I think this offers some good insights into gay culture, but ultimately I don't think it does a good job at offering a nuanced perspective. And that was my review. Thank which you. I think sums up quite nicely. Actually, yeah. we can just edit everything out. Yeah. I'm just going to upload this, that. This episode is one minute. Um, and then a question. Um, but yeah, oh, yeah so question. that's that on the, yeah. on the Velvet Rage. Yeah. And yeah. now we go on to our final segment. Which is a question from the famous uh, book, book, of of questions. book of questions by Gregory Stock, PhD. Ooh. So he's another PhD <laughs> trusted. He's not to be trusted, indeed. So are you not gonna do a PhD soon? Uh, no comments. <laughs> uh, I am very qualified to talk about things. Yeah. Okay. Comments, yeah, please. Cool. Of course. So, yeah, I didn't really pick one out, but I. Found a very interesting one randomly though. Yeah. Um, would you rather live nearer to your parents or farther away from them? What about your brothers, sisters, or grown children? Oof. Nearer or farther than we farther farther um, than we do now. Or no, I think that generally, generally. Would you rather live close generally. to them? Let's say close. Oh. In the same street. In the same street or further away. Like in a different country. Well, well, there must be something in between, yeah, right? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think personally for me, I would like to live quite close to my parents. And I mean, the Netherlands is tiny for our international listeners. So, yeah, to the border of um, Germany is like two hours. To the other border of Belgium, it's like an hour and a half. 
but I would definitely want to live, um, yeah, at most like I think an hour away from my parents because I would just like to see them um, every once in a while. And yeah, if I live like two hours away, that would just be more difficult. And yeah, in general, if at, at any point I would have grandchildren. I mean, children. Uh, yeah, children, sorry. <laughs> Exactly. If my parents one step at a time, Martin. One Sorry, step yeah, at a time. Sorry, yeah. Very optimistic. First, go getting, find a girlfriend. Worked up here. Exactly. So, <laughs> if I would have children, which then would be my parents' grandchildren. Exactly. Look at me. Very good. That's how they. I always, I always get them mixed up. It's horrible. Mm. Not, not that I. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Just like family relationships. I think I feel like you're digging a hole for yourself. That's gonna be hard to get out of. And aunt and great aunt and whatever okay, all that okay. stuff. Anyway. It's quite difficult. So, um, someone who I have spoken to in the past, her parents moved, uh, like first lived, I would say an hour and fifteen minutes away, and that to her was already like, and she was already working. She was like, well, that's that's quite far away mm-hmm. for me. Really yeah to, to just yeah. spontaneously see them and go all the way up there and then or then them coming to visit her but uh, they quite recently moved even further away so like two hours and 20 minutes is the sort of drive hour or the, the travel time and she's just saying like yeah i would never i really wouldn't ever do that because then it's a it's a whole day like i could travel there then I could be there for say two or three hours, and if I would travel back, that's then already six to seven hours spent in a day. So yeah, I could travel there and then stay the night, which I think she also never really wanted to do, and then go back the next day. But that's really the only option. Like for that, if if she if she would have children, which would then be the grandchildren of her parents. That's exactly how it will be. Yes. Yes. Then <laughs> it wouldn't really like. If her parents would then say, like, oh, we can, like, come by to whatever, to take care of uh, the, the kids for uh, a day, half a day, then having to drive or travel more than two hours just to get there and then having to travel more than two hours to get back, that doesn't really work. Like, I, to me, at least, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that from my parents. I mean, I wouldn't expect them in any way to help like that but more like I, I i would have very big difficulties asking them like hey could you maybe drive like two and a half hours or two hours and 20 minutes to get there and then also in the evening quite early drive two hours and, and 20 minutes back to where you live i think that will be yeah that would be quite um difficult and i think because i only have one sister i think i would also like it to live yeah quite close to her mm-hmm. also maybe an hour or so yeah Nice. Yeah. I, um, I, <laughs> I don't want to live. No. Um, I think I kind of have the same in the sense that, like, I prefer to live, I guess, no further than an hour or something from my parents. But then it, I feel like it also depends on what stage of my life I'm in or, yeah. or like, how my okay. parents are doing. Um, because as you say, you know, I think if I ever have children at some point it would be really great to have my parents be able to see them a lot um, and also for example i remember when i was younger and if i was ill but my parents really had to work they would call my grandparents who lived 45 ish minutes away by car mm-hmm. and they would babysit me for the day basically um 
so that's even easier if for example um you live down the street from your parents but um so that was quite nice but i think you know if i'm i don't know if i'm i don't know early on in my career i'm a young professional or whatever or whatever my parents are in good health then it doesn't matter so much to me how close they live in relation to me like um it would obviously suck if you're at the other side of the world and then if something happened you'd have to fly back and that would take an entire day but um i think as long as i like i don't have children or my parents don't need me that much in that way mm -hmm. then i also wouldn't mind say living in a different country if it takes me less than a day to get to them mm -hmm. like yeah if if it takes two or three hours by plane it's not ideal but i think if i have my own life at this point i wouldn't really feel comfortable maybe but like if in a couple years i'm settled and i have a job then i wouldn't mind so much but yeah like i said i think it's quite relative because i think if you or i would have like just grown children well i'm assuming it's the same for you as in if you would have grown children and they would go to university then yeah i personally wouldn't mind that much if i like i wouldn't expect to see them every weekend yeah for example or every two weeks even i'll be totally fine i think with seeing them yeah once a month or something or even less i i don't think i would mind at that stage whereas of course if i would have uh yeah children of my own that would be uh say ages of uh, I don't know just young let's say five or so yeah I think I would like it if my parents would see them yeah every once in a while and of course that I would also see them yeah regularly I don't know it's quite and for me like I haven't been living close to my parents for a while now I would say like three years mm -hmm. um, and I, I think you get just you get used to it quite quickly and I have quite a good relationship with both of my parents, I would say, and with my brother. And if you are okay at like staying in touch with them, mm. which I sometimes have to work on, I admit it, but I think generally it's, it's going well, mm -hmm. then it's nice like this. And of course, sometimes I miss them and I wish I could see them uh, more often or it would just be easier if you just go over and see them and it wouldn't take like yeah at least three days to like go there and then come back <laughs> but um yeah i don't know i i like the idea of being closer to them and i could imagine living like for example in the same city or whatever later on but for now i really also enjoy having like my own space in the sense yeah. of being in another country <laughs> um yeah and i don't know i think either way it will be fine and i would it would be yeah a good relationship either way and you will make it work, i don't know I yeah i will make it work and even if i had younger children of course it's great if they can see their grandparents then on a regular basis but even if I think I never really had that because like one of my grandparents, they lived like two hours away and the other one's more like seven or so. And I think 
the ones that live closer, I saw them maybe four times a year and the other ones two times a year or so, or maybe once. And I don't know, I felt like it was fine. Like, mm. Of course, it's nice if you have family that is like close yeah. and location wise and then emotional wise close. Yeah. That's nice. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I it would so. be fine either way if you have a good relationship with them. Yeah. Then, yeah. And as I mean this in the nicest way possible, but I also wouldn't want my parents breathing down my neck all the time, right? I think yeah, if exactly. they live next door, you think yeah. they're they're listening? Probably not. Yeah, I also don't. But think even that if they are, they'd understand. Um, but like, I think <laughs> it's it's quite tiring, no matter your age, really. Yeah. If your parents are down the street, and every time something happens. Yeah. They come knock at your door and they're like, yeah. "Hey, li- listen up! What are you doing? Like, right you want now, your own right? life." And I think you know. Um, yeah. And one thing I think is also weird. So I had that once when my parents just separated and they lived just like one village apart, basically. And I switched with who I was living with. Meeting your parents doing groceries is so weird. Yeah, it's the weirdest I've had thing. Happened a couple times. Yeah, yeah, you must yeah. have happened. Yeah. My parents are still happily together. <laughs> Uh, yeah and look at how That's you've turned out not gay um, <laughs> I want to say I don't think my dad ever did groceries but then <laughs> he, he did though like once in, I, oh, no I always That's went so with my bad. mom and then on the weekends we went with like and my mom and dad went together yeah to like the bigger supermarket or whatever and then yeah what's Ooh. really awkward is running into your other parents my parents are also divorced when you're at a restaurant my parents are not other parent my other parent this, this is a ref- reference to that movie do you remember what Bleep name. we're not yeah. doing names yeah. oh Bleep. oh yes thank you so much um, <laughs> no we're not doing names so good luck Coraline um, you know this one yes so thank you for that diversion that really reference. wasn't necessary <laughs> I'm just gonna edit it all out and a gonna... reference that really kind of confused me as to what I was please do okay but what's awkward <laughs> what I was saying mm-hmm. let's start over yeah what's really awkward is meeting one parent on a date in a restaurant you mean the other parent when you're out with your other parent oh my god on a family dinner yeah that's like the nice nice thing um like about the situation with my parents is that i don't see like you you i couldn't run into them with while i'm with like the other mm. parent. But, but why is it awkward do you feel like you're cheating I feel like they're it, cheating. Yeah, it's more about like what you think your parents are thinking or feeling, not about what you personally feel. I think like that's how it is for no. me. Also, this happened for me when I was like between the ages of eight and twelve. Oh my god! Okay. It, yeah, sometimes it would happen situation. that I'd run into them at like a grocery store when I'm with the mm-hmm. other parent. But also, by the time I was thirteen, I wouldn't go grocery shopping with my parents anyway. So still do that i mean i do it now when i'm at home but um, but but then what makes it so awkward like what specifically i think what's especially when you're younger it's hard to imagine your parents having a life outside of you being a parent yes yeah Yeah. and i think when your parents are together that's not really something you experience 
as yeah, much you don't anyway. see your parent as much as not being in that parent role yeah yeah whereas if you see, uh, see yeah. your your mom or your dad even if it's out for groceries or at a restaurant with someone else um or like just a friend even um that then solidifies the fact that they do have a life which i think when you're older than 12 is not a big deal mm-hmm. but when you're a younger child but then i see, i definitely also think like the, that they have a life that you are at that moment not a part of yeah because mm-hmm. i think to me it was as far as i remember like it was always my parents were there for me as in yeah at least up until That's yeah, the yeah. Of their existence yeah yeah at the age of 12 it was always like my parents were involved in doing stuff that that yeah revolved around me in some way naturally yeah. <laughs> but then yeah at least that's the idea i had but yeah yeah that that yeah thinking about that that would be very weird yeah um and also like my kind of lives or i, I not that i had two lives but it, well it did feel like that in some ways where i feel like my life with my mom was separate from my life with my dad because it's also something that they unconsciously or consciously i don't know something that they kind of stimulated in the sense that they didn't really want to impose upon the other parents kind of life with us me and my sister Mm -hmm. um which I, i think has both kind of upsides and downsides i think you know you that's good if you want to you make sure that your your children create a proper bond with separate the parents separately and then again i also think it's kind of weird maybe to pretend that you're not both the parents of your children yeah if you, get, you know mm-hmm. because you are yeah it's not like you're not a parent when the child is with the other parent you yeah. know um but um so that also was something that was that I kind of grew up with in that sense because my parents got divorced when I was six um, is that when I was with the one parent I wouldn't really talk to or see the other parent because I had separate lives and that was kind of what was encouraged in whatever way mm-hmm. um, so then I also think it's really weird to see your other parent because like well I'm with, I'm with my dad now and even though my parents lived two streets away from each other so like you know yeah i would also always go in between them if i forgot stuff or if i needed to pick something up or whatever mm-hmm. uh, but still seeing them in a different context other than at my house yeah. with this specific parent mm-hmm. because if there are more than two <laughs> one of very one of many um that was weird quite yeah. jarring um but that's the um, divorced parents Trauma. kids life mm. yeah Whatever. yeah yeah wow what lovely. a nice note to end on yeah <laughs> <laughs> everything nice is and yeah um, how long is it uh, i can't see long i think one, nearly two oh, jesus nearly two hours no, no. is it how long one and a half. half okay yeah. well that's hour decent it'll be like an hour and yeah. five minutes or so to edit all the stuff out Okay. Yeah, what a nice ending. Yeah. Well, we should end properly, right? I think this yes. is weird. It is. We do need to end say thank you for listening. Okay. Well, yeah. that's it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for thank listening. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you uh, next week on the Dead End Podcast. Or two weeks. I don't know what our schedule is. What is our schedule? Every week? By month, yeah. So every second Someone week. knows what our schedule week. is. Yeah. Every second fans, week. Okay. Deep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>
Do 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 do. Dead end. <laughs>